Hi, I'm Laura Allen. And I'm Liv Austin. And between us, we are a songwriter, actor, singer, producer, and the hosts of My Amazing Mess, a podcast where we talk to creatives who are right in the middle of developing their own unique careers. They are totally honest with us about what it takes to pursue their dream job, the exciting highs, the disheartening lows, and the amazing mess that is everything in between. Hi everyone, Laura here. In this week's My Amazing Mess episode, Liv and I speak to theatre designer PJ McAvoy. Um, We find out in this episode that PJ is a set designer, costume designer, and also sometimes props designer, and also has kind of made a bit of a name for himself in projection as well in theatre, which is definitely more of a thing in recent years. He has worked on fantastic productions that have gone on at the Park Theatre in London, Southwark Playhouse, the Royal Festival Hall, among a load of others under the amazing CV that he's already got under his belt. Both Liv and I felt that we had learnt so much um, being on the other side of it about what goes into designing a set for production right from when you get the script and how how much creativity and also logistics go into that. Um, We find out a little bit about how PJ got into it and why he actually kind of strayed away from the acting side and wanted to go more into design. Um, And we just have really enjoyed talking to PJ and hope that you guys really enjoy this and learn a lot from it. So today we are really happy and excited to have our friend PJ McFoy. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming down. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into doing what you do because you do set design and also yep. costume design is that right and projection design and projection oh, yeah. yes so we're and, props. and props and so. props and props yeah i mean we're gonna have to touch on all of this like but a, yeah we're curious to to know how you because this is kind of probably the most different from from what we do i think of all the guests that we've had so far would you say yeah, Probably. I think so. Yeah, um, I think. But it's a bit more of a physical discipline exactly. rather than a, like a personal discipline. Exactly. Which I think from, so yeah, how did you get management. into it? Like if you I go back. absolutely to... fell into it. It is probably the end of the story. So I will, I will <laughs> kind of go back to the beginning, but by complete chance. So ooh, going back, certainly growing up, always had an interest in art. And, and that kind of world. And then as I got older, it was only as I got older that the theatre kind of interest started to creep in in like secondary school and then on to, in sixth form college. And as I was doing sixth form, it was, it was kind of a weird split in that I'd say almost from a subject point of view, my interest definitely lay in art. Um, I was doing graphic design um, for an A-level um, and that was probably my strongest subject as, as a student. But what's really interesting is socially, when I was at sixth form, um, my heart was definitely in the theatre. It was the kind of theatre students were the ones that I really connected with and had kind of a, a social group kind of with, which then made it a really interesting kind of split in terms of like which path kind of I wanted to follow because... Graphics was in a really is a is in itself a kind of it's on the fringes of the art scene, you might say. So maybe the more 
true art students that didn't that that wasn't what I was wasn't like a classical painter or a fine artist or kind of any of those things so I that's maybe why I didn't necessarily fit in with that group and then A levels came and went without really having any kind of fixed plan for what to do next um, a lot of my friends had kind of had in that uh, in the drama department had gone off to drama school a couple of them had gone to Guildford which would sort of tie in later on and I knew drama school kind of wasn't going to be an option in the performance sense for me that that wasn't going to happen and so the art path was equally a bit kind of blurry as to, as to what you do so the option I was left with was by nature of the grades that I got in my graphics course I was automatically placed onto an art foundation course if I wanted to be as kind of a postgrad thing with a if you do this you might end up at art school so I was like okay I don't really know what else I'm going to do so I may as well start this and whilst I was doing that, I was still heavily involved with all the kind of extracurricular productions that were going on at the college, doing what I now know to be all those kind of backstage roles without really knowing the full ins and outs of what they were. But it was the staff in, in that department that were kind of like, oh, you've been doing all this stuff and helping out on our shows. Have you ever considered like doing that, doing that properly? And the college did have good ties with uh, Guildford School of Acting at the point. The uh, previous head of production is no longer there. He now runs Aura, uh, the drama school Aura, uh, is a man called Adrian Hall. And so he introduced me to, uh, at the time, Guildford School of Acting's professional production course, I think was its official title. Backstage is, is the best way of describing it. Um, very much open that door to me and also pretty much said if you know if you want to come just sort of off seeing what I'd done to help out with the extracurricular stuff then you know do, do come along and, and we'll give you a place on that course and sort of as a 18 19 year old who didn't really know what he wanted to do but again enjoyed that social aspect of theatre and it's it's really interesting to look back at how maybe at that age your social surroundings do maybe have a not necessarily a bigger influence on the choices you make, but they certainly have an impact. And so as a, oh, you can continue to live and play in that theatre environment, but you don't have to perform. There are, there are other things you can do. So I was like, okay, I'll absolutely give this a go. And so quit the art foundation course that I was doing because it was a bit like, well, I've, I've now got this course. There was a really interesting moment where I kind of tried to get the college to let me design a set for one of their productions and have that count towards my art foundation kind of course. What was really interesting was the art course said, no, we'd rather you not do that, but feel free to do a um, conceptual design. So pick any theatre you want in the world and like draw the design or make a model for the design, kind of, you know, imagine what that would be. And I, it, it's maybe just the way I'm wired because I was there like, but if if I go into the department, they'll, they'll let me do it. They'll let me make a set. And yes, it's not going to be a massive set because there's only so much of a budget, but I'll, I'll actually get to do the set. So that was kind of the breaking point where I was like, okay, maybe this course isn't kind of what I want it to be. So I quit the course, had the place at Guildford, but still designed the set for that little college show, which was a great kind of first experience of, and, and sort of, technically does stand as my first set design although at the time i didn't know that what that would lead on to um so then went down to guildford very much did the backstage course which was not design based at all 
didn't it's not that i didn't know that at the time it's it, it was again i still didn't know what i wanted to do so um i went down to guildford the production course at the time would give you um kind of teach you the basics of stage management lighting sound carpentry um the all those kind of other areas and what i really liked about the course was that it did give you a flavor of all of those you didn't have to specify from the off oh i'm going to be a stage manager kind of thing so I, and as a person who was just like oh i'm really interested in theater but don't really know what i want to do it was good to kind of experience all the different departments and try them all and then really interesting that at the end i was like oh i don't really want to do any of these as a career that's really interesting having kind of tried them all i think the most of my time there was I kind of did stage management because it's maybe the one that's closest to what I kind of do now. Certainly um, ASMs or assistant stage managers, um, which is always a weird title because they're technically well, they are assistants, but they do their own thing. And that's a, a lot of ASMs work in props. So that did give me that initial outlet of, oh, I get to do something creative over here. Um, and so I guess the the one thing that I took from it all was in deciding, oh, I don't want to do any of those things. It did kind of help me shore it up a little bit that maybe I want to give design a go. And this is kind of, I don't want to talk for too long, but that's like almost half of the story because it's at that point you go, oh, I'm going to be a set designer. And it isn't quite that easy. It's especially not that easy if you've not done a course in set design. What you're saying about kind of finding your crew, as, as it were, being yeah. people in, in theatre you know it's so easy to just assume well then i want to be an actor or if if everyone that you're you're hanging out with is is in a band i'm going to be a musician it's 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 really kind of quite refreshing to hear that your talent and your passion was in art and that was yeah. kind of you were trying to get in and look at it in another way what's also great and which i really want to hear about is um is how you then move from finding all those things that are kind of related to being backstage because it's so yeah. useful as an actor to know who everybody is and what they all do because it all feeds in so what when you were training in that area was there a lot of talk about how how you then tailor off into one of those avenues or was it after you made that decision okay i want to do the set design that you had to find a way to kind of work out what the next step was it's kind of a bit of both i think for everyone else on my course um about halfway through the course they would everyone would pick the thing that was their specialist area so stage management lighting and a lot of those students had arrived anyway with those ideas in mind you know guildford was just the place they'd chosen to be but they wanted to work in light and almost had to do the other things as just part and parcel of the course. I think, you know, there was a few of us that I turned up and just like, oh no, I want to try everything. I, I don't really have an opinion, but I think the majority came being like, no, I want to be a stage manager, but I guess I'll do the lighting module. And I genuinely looking back, I think that's great. I think it's great that um, within that course, you are kind of forced to do little bits. And ultimately it's proven very useful i think for me in terms of um like an extra education that was my primary education um in that i got to experience all those different areas because it's very much meant from the off of wanting to become a set designer i had at least an acknowledgement of what all those different departments have to do when it comes to um comes to so it, it's a bit like learning a language to tie things to, to, to our little 
thing at the start. If you can speak stage manager, it's much easier to have a conversation with them, knowing where they're coming from, rather than necessarily always just you know kind of focusing on the design and what you want. You know, if you can translate that into maybe how a lighting person is going to light it for you, or or that kind of thing, because you know, I mean, I I still don't to this day know all the names of lights, and often you know tease lighting people by pointing to the one and calling it the the one name that I do know. Is that is that a source for? No, it's not. <laughs> um, but and but that's good, you know. That, that is like kind of part of it and knowing you know knowing what they're up against and the kind of how their process works it does help you know like when a good time to talk to them is and that sort of thing so I so ultimately whilst it, it would be very easy to come out of my degree and go like, oh, I did a degree in absolutely nothing of what I've gone on to become. Actually, it has all informed that in, a, in a, just in a different way. But unfortunately, it very much didn't prepare me to then leave and try and pick up a career in, in, in terms of design because it wasn't even... Um, Gilbert's fault in that they just didn't have the contacts necessarily kind of in those fields whereas if you were um, a lighting student maybe you'd, you'd be introduced to a lighting designer and that sort of thing I and mean, obviously set designers did come in but it's such a it's such a wide and and to be honest it's such a solitary field as well there aren't set design companies that you can go and work for whereas there are you know lighting companies in a different way and warehouses and th those sorts of things that offer different varieties of jobs and certainly stage management there tends to be a group of stage managers who work on a show it's you know it's only the very little kind of touring shows that would have just one stage management so again as a graduate you kind of have those opportunities to become part of a team and again with, with Guildford has an absolutely great stage management course it always has and they have great ties to the industry so those students do get you know really good really good strong contacts whilst they're there and, and can then kind of go and, and kick on but the design contacts weren't weren't necessarily there so you did yeah I kind of popped out with a bit like oh what do what do I do now and I guess you go into um, a, sort of a survival mode is just kind of what I've always done in that before I even graduated from Guildford, I was working in the Ivanarno, which is Guildford's local theatre, backstage. Uh, and again, not really anything to do with design there. Um, and I was working on stage door and I was working as an usher. You know, I was doing as much as I could to, one, pay my bills, pay the rent, you know, keep me as a northerner, keep me down south, keep me actually in the vicinity of theatre and not to say that there isn't any theatre up north but I think you know London is the place where the most theatre is happening so it was very much just trying to find a job to enable me to keep doing that but at the same time well if I get a job that is something to do with the theatre hopefully I'm just going to learn a bit more as I go and I, I crewed at the Arno for at least maybe seven or eight years and obviously again learned quite a lot whilst I was there because every week we'd put in a show and take a show down that at some point someone designed that show and then someone built that show and then the show comes on the back of a truck and you help put it together so you're getting that first-hand experience of oh this is how sets go together so a lot of my kind of real design education almost started after I'd finished kind of my study in in just the extra things that I was kind of doing. I can imagine that it's uh it's a bit of a tough one to get into in terms of actually proving to somebody that you're the person that they want to use to design their set for their precious yeah. play or, you know, whatever they're putting on. I'm sure that being 
inexperienced in it is quite or knowing that you can do it but to them seeming inexperienced can be quite yeah. a challenge to actually break Absolutely. through the the funny thing on that is it's still really difficult i'm like seven years deep now uh, and kind of and it's still really difficult to meet new directors meet new producers and have that I, I'm proving to you that I'm kind of the one to do this because whilst that makes it it actually makes it quite similar to I think the thing you performers have to go through but you don't get to audition in that in that sense which you know from never having really kind of done one um, in the professional capacity at least an audition is obviously that is your moment to kind of prove that you can do the role by maybe doing something similar or, or performing the role, you know, and, and so a director and a casting person can see, oh yes, they can do that. That never happens in terms of design in that you never, you never rock up to a design interview or a design meeting and go, oh, I've already designed the show for you. Do you like this one? And then they just pick, you know, it's very much, they've seen your previous work um they've maybe heard a little bit about you as a person and you maybe go and have a chat it's so it, it really is you know we do talk about it in the industry anyway that it's it's all about who you know and the contacts you make and the networking that side of thing which again i would argue isn't taught enough at any at any level on any type of course um that you really do have to that is that side thing that you have to learn and you either maybe have... Some people are very naturally, I think, gifted at the socialising and the schmoozing and all that kind of thing. But if you're not, then you've really got to kind of force yourself to kind of maybe a bit more interactive and, and a bit better at, at sort of meeting new people. But yeah, it's always... It, and it's very difficult, especially when you're starting out. Because at that point, like the one thing that does make it easier for me now is I have a portfolio and you need about 10 designs before you kind of feel like you have what I'd call a competitive portfolio. But it's that thing of, well, how do you get the 10 designs before you've got the 10 designs of a portfolio to kind of prove? And where, so to bring things again a little bit full circle, where I was really lucky was that Guildford School of Acting, the people there, they were really helpful in that they obviously, they knew me as a student, and I guess they kind of liked me as a student enough to kind of realise that I hadn't maybe necessarily got the exact thing that I wanted out of the course, whilst I, you know, I still got a lot out of it. And so whenever there was an opportunity that basically they were in need of a designer, whenever they were, were down a designer, because there was a few times where I got a phone call, I was like, oh, this designer that we wanted to do the show has dropped out. Are you interested in doing it? So they did throw those gigs my way, which was really helpful, really useful. And, um, I've, you know, the early ones, I was still... I think I was so green in terms of knowing how to be a set designer. So they, looking back, you know, it was really, really kind of finding my feet. And I wouldn't necessarily say they went particularly well. But it was, what was interesting was by the time I got offered the show that we did together, Laura, that was at a point where I was like, maybe this isn't going to happen. Like I haven't, I haven't got these 10 designs. It's just too hard because in terms of trying to get assistant work or anything like that, I was always fighting against the people who'd done the quote unquote right course. I was like, well, what course did you do? Oh, I did a course in stage management. Right. And, and, you know, that would always kind of be battered down. And so it was just becoming more and more difficult to kind of get it. And I, if I'm honest, and you might not know this, and it'd be very interesting to hear your reaction, I took the show I designed when you were a student purely for the money. 
at at that point, it was very much oh um, the I think they I don't think a designer dropped out. They just needed a designer um, and asked me if I wanted to do it, and they'd pay me two grand to do it. And you know, at that point, I was just crewing. I was just doing bits of other things. I was like, yeah, absolutely, I will do that to earn the money. I'd become a bit disenfranchised from the whole thing, so I was just like, I'll rock up and I'll do whatever the director wants me to do. And the weird thing about that kind of mindset was that, if anything, it freed me up a little bit. I think before that, I'd gone in so kind of like, I want to be a set designer and I've thought of every possible option and it has to be this and and was so kind of focused on my area of it. And actually going in, and I'm not saying going in not caring, but going in with a bit a bit more of a relaxed approach, having a discussion with the director that wasn't an immediate, well, I want to do it this way, and if you don't want to do it that way, then I'm going to go sulk in the corner. I'm really interested to, as we, we're talking yeah. about it, to kind of find out, because in my mind, set design, please uh, correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong, but it kind of feels like it stems from two main parts and then everything else must tailor off of it. But on the one hand, it's how do you learn to actually like design and make and build a set. And then there's also what is that creative process with the director and actually reading a play and deciding yeah it's really interesting so what what kind of com- what's is it the chicken or the egg like what kind of comes first you get a play and then you think i'm gonna um, read it and put my yeah on. no i think i think you are absolutely right that you can split the role right down the middle in terms of the designer and the job or the professional kind of part of it. Um, I think it is, for me at least, I don't want to speak, equally don't want to speak for everyone, I do think it is a bit egg before chicken, do I say, in that you certainly, you read you read the play and you allow yourself that time to, um, oh no, now, now I'm going back on that, as to which one comes first. <laughs> but certainly for, for me, you know, you allow yourself that time to think about a piece artistically as a designer, what you might like or want to bring to it. Uh, what I generally love about theatre design is that we're not always tied to naturalism. And I think you've seen bits of my work now and you'll realise that that is something I strongly kind of go for. So in not being tied to naturalism, you're given that kind of freedom to really think about how you want to visually represent the text. And so that is maybe where I start. But once you've decided how you want to visually represent the text, it is very much part of your job to communicate that to the people who are going to make that happen. When you're starting out, sometimes that is you. So you just have to communicate it to yourself. But as you kind of creep forward, or if you're lucky enough to to be working in a drama school environment, more often than not, they do have a carpentry team. And yeah, it is your job to go, well, I want this to be this big. That was a part that I was... I didn't realise was going to be as difficult until I kind of started doing it, is to just know how big a door is. And you, you like the, the, you know those first kind of times where oh I want a door in this set, and the carpenter goes great how big's your door, and you know when you're starting you're like oh it's it's as big it's as a door shaped it, yeah it's it's door shaped <laughs> and it's it's the size of a door and then you realise oh I need to I need to be specific I have to tell them what a door is an interesting little fun fact for the podcast most doors are about two meters high I know this now because I've designed probably fifty plus doors that have gone in, in sets but at the beginning green as I was, it was a bit like, oh no, I just want a door. And then someone does, yeah, but you need to, that it is part of your job to say how big, how wide, you know, th- that kind of stuff is. And so there is that kind of period where you have to pick up 
all the all those basic traits of of you know heights and widths and measurements and you do way more learning about imperial measurement and metric measurement than i ever thought that i'd do because of who in the industry might be using whichever you know wood tends to come in sheets of eight by four because eight by four is really easy to say is eight foot by four foot but as we've gone more metric that's two four four oh by one two two oh and you have to translate all of that in your head kind of and just know those things and know whoever you're talking to to maybe flip them kind of uh, as you as you do them it's kind of like a, a creative versus practical thing in your mind because yeah. you know if you're thinking about a, a play it's you must have the the issue of designing things that can move from one scene to the next and you mm. know so that person's going to have to be there at that point and how are we going to get them on what is the what's the discussion with the director in how early does a, a discussion like that start to happen with practicalities versus creativity on a, on a play or it can differ depending on the project i think um what i found because i do currently i work in a lot of musicals i do design a lot of musicals um if i'm honest it's because there's a bit more money in in those musicals and but musicals do come with a certain set most musicals come with a certain set of kind of unwritten rules i mean if you're doing a musical you're probably going to want a big space for the the big you know your company to dance and sing and do all of those things that musicals are are full of and you've probably maybe got a, a bigger cast than you might have say in a play because you can you can do a play with four people but there's very few musicals that might have as as intimate a cast so certainly it depends on the project in terms of that initial discussion but it going into to a first meeting with a director knowing that we're doing a big musical it's going to have 20 plus people in there's you know you've already listened to it you've read the script you know that there are those big chorus numbers where you're going to need as many people on stage as possible as a designer you have to allow for that and unless you're you already know you're going to kind of go real avant-garde with it you're going to need a big space and so it's then your job of oh well how do i make that big space interesting but it's also your job not to fill that space with other things that as a designer you might think oh this is great and but practically no one can dance on them no one can even step on them and and that sort of so again going back to the little things you have to learn is just you know how big can a step be you know how or how high and how how short that a human can naturally walk up it without having to think about it and without tripping up and falling down the stairs and then you get sued um, i did a, a musical once at the finbra theater have you i don't know if you've been to the finbra it's tiny about two-thirds of the room taken up by um audience seats it really occurred to me we, we'd been rehearsing with um like a floor plan on, of the set in a in a big studio somewhere so we were kind of galloping in our dance routines from corner to corner which did not reflect the space that we then went into it was kind yeah. of a, a weird fault on the the part of the whoever had designed it or shown us what the space we you know what space we had to work with so it then made it really difficult when we then went into the theater and realized mm. that we could only gallop two little gallops before we crashed into somebody else yeah. so do, do you come across problems like that or is that kind of really early on working out how much space there is for people to and then absolutely that that tends to be you you try and define that as clearly as you can within your role as as early as possible and certainly it is the designer's job to produce something like a ground plan in time for maybe not the first day of rehearsals but the first week of rehearsals so again and it's translating that to stage management so they can put the markup down so that you um then have that to work from but almost as a the supervisor part of your role and, and that you learn with a bit more experience is you know that once that markup goes down, 
it's not even the performer's fault, but they're going to spend four weeks pretending to walk through a door that isn't there. Because, yes, you know, if you're lucky enough to be on a higher budgeted kind of production, then they may be able to put some of those elements into the, into the room uh, for performers. But certainly most of the shows that I've done that might have had balconies and second levels and, uh, and all those sorts of things, and those, they were it wasn't an option to put those things into a rehearsal room. Um, so you just had the, the map, the, the kind of floor plan. And so you have to you have to be the one that then watches rehearsal runs or pops into rehearsal and sees a person sprinting up what is going to be 12 steps in you know half a second and touching base with them and going just get into your head that when when we hit the theater that's maybe not going to be as easy as that or you just walked through that wall and there, there's a line on the floor that shows that, that that's where a wall is and you just made your exit through it and good luck trying to do that in the theater but please don't break myself <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, you know, you have to. It's, it's we, we all have limits in terms of the shows and the productions that we might, that we might work on. So I think it's always about just recognizing what the limits are and how you can allow as much kind of um, leeway for that and to make the right people know what those things might, how those things might play out once you get to the space. It's something you get better at. You have quite interesting roles uh, in relationship with the actors, don't you? Mm. In that you, because a lot of actors talk about how when they get into the space that they're actually going to be performing in, uh, when they get into the costumes, you know, that they will be performing and that that's really informative for their for their characters, even if they may have been rehearsing for a while and doing the character work. But a lot of people find it really helpful to kind of be in the right costume and to be in the setting, you know, if it's in a house or whatever it might be. So do you feel a lot of responsibility when you kind of create? Because I'm interested to hear about costumes and stuff and yeah. how you've kind of got into to being costumes a costume Costumes are really interesting one because... It, again, it, it depends on each project, I think, in terms of you always want, uh, you do, you always want a performer to have a certain amount of input in, in terms of what they might be wearing. But you have to be careful, I think, certainly on a bigger production where you have lots of people that ultimately it does fall to you and the director to dictate what that aesthetic is kind of going to be. And sometimes that's maybe not necessarily in agreement, or, you know, kind of a performer. But certainly, I, again, the responsible part of the job is that whatever you are putting a performer in, is comfortable enough for them to do their job, um, you know, and that again is the split down the middle of aesthetically what you might want to do as a designer, the artistic part of the role and the practical, you know, just like telling the carpentry how big a door needs to be, you need to create some sort of clothing that, you know, a performer can still do their job in. And it's, e it's easy to think of, you know, musicals are an easy one to look to because when you've a performer in a in a particular costume can they do the choreography in it and if they can't you're you're not doing necessarily doing your job correctly however pretty you might think the dress that you've picked out for them or the skinny jeans or whatever if that if that performer can't then do the high kicks and and, and those sorts of things you're inhibiting that performance so that is definitely something you take into consideration i love costume design it's kind of kind of really one of my favorite parts and i love it despite the fact that because it very much wasn't a world I came from and I did spend a really long time 
kind of trying to convince people that I could kind of give it a go. And it's it's the hard kind of blurry line that you get into because I am quite happy to sit here and say that I'm a costume designer um, and I think I'm all right at it, <laughs> I having done it for a while now, but I'm not a costume maker. So I don't have that practical background, but I don't necessarily think it's 100% needed for the role of designer certainly helps and and there will be costume designers out there who absolutely can you know design a dress and make it from scratch and i am quite happy to to sit back and say more more talented than me um but i don't think that should necessarily stop me kind of being able to have that design approach to costume and certainly it's just then about surrounding yourself with enough talented people to help you realize kind of what you want to do and you know and as you know as we've gone along i've certainly again i've got better at translating my ideas into the world of costume making so you know i've learned way more about shape and fabric and and those sorts of things but i'm i'm still not about to go and pick up a needle and thread you know that's just not within my skill set but i always I always approached uh, costume design way more as character design. In my personal life, I am a huge fan of comic books. And obviously everyone knows what a comic book is right now because of the dominating cinema. But certainly comic books in the original medium, in the kind of graphic drawn medium, that is some of the absolute best character slash costume design we've had in history i mean everyone knows what superman looks like everyone knows what batman spider-man you know those those costumes that were not designed by fashion people they were not designed of anyone with the knowledge of of garments and yet they are so now ingrained in popular culture and everyone can immediately point to them and i think that is certainly how i approach um costume design is you know you are trying to create something so instantly recognizable that says so much about what that character is. It doesn't have to be a spandex superhero costume, but you know, it's the lessons that you can learn from those and how kind of iconic they've become. I, th- I think that's the, for me, that's the best approach to costume design. Well, just touching on the, um, the, the play that we worked on together. Yeah. So I was, um, we were tra- I was training, you obviously weren't training, yeah. um, and we got into our final year, and um, uh, the play was called The Gut Girls by Sarah Daniels, mm-hmm. I want to say, and um, really, really great feminist play um, about set at the turn of the century, about women, young girls working in a slaughterhouse, and then their kind of transition to becoming maids, where they actually don't, they were perfectly happy in the slaughterhouse, and we all read the play, and I remember thinking, it's got to have blood, because it's just all about them cutting up meat, and and I think we were all in agreement that if the play did not have blood, it would not be a good play. And um, the first day of rehearsals, PJ turns up with a, a little model box, um, which I, I would love to hear more about as well, about those model boxes. But um, firstly, it was covered in uh, blood, so we were very happy. Not, and not then, real. Not, not real blood. But also, which I still have, is the drawing that you did. You still have the drawing. I still have the drawing. It was the cool, one of the coolest things I think I've yet to have had really experienced as an actor was to have me drawn as a character. And exactly what yeah. you just said, it was totally this character. So I played a character called Polly. And it, looking back, I can even picture it exactly what I wore now. It's not completely naturalistic is it no. what, what you designed it was more yeah. kind of comic booky i guess yeah now you're saying I, th- it. I think certainly my il- illustration style is is i have a very comic booky illustration style so yeah. those designs and do like, kind of come out that way yeah yeah um but certainly as an approach to it 
Yeah, and it came from a discussion with the director of, and you know, finally, kind of maybe working with a director who kind of genuinely engaged me enough to to ask what what my kind of my opinion was, and my opinion about that show having you know maybe dipped my toe and seen what other versions had had been like, was that other versions of the story of the Gook Girls had kind of created a very uniform aesthetic. It's you know as you said, it's turn of the century. Um, we're in the gutting sheds. People have an idea of what a post-Victorian or late Victorian maid or um, worker, working class worker, is meant to look like. So we'll just put the, put them in that kind of stock costume. And reading the play, there are so many great characters in it that it felt like if we just put them in the the standard kind of dress that was just such going to be such a wasted opportunity for my key thing with gut girls is i wanted people to come away from it because i and i find this myself you go and see a play for the first time having not read it it can sometimes be really hard to keep up with character names and and who who those characters are and you come away kind of going oh i really liked that one because you've forgotten their name because it was only mentioned a couple of times and so my absolute what I wanted to happen with that show was even if the people came away and they didn't know the names, they would very easily be able to say, oh, the one in the blue jacket or, um, you know, the one with, um, I think you had straw coming. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking um, it definitely wasn't naturalistic because I had straw shoulder pads. So. Yeah. Um, and so just, just things like that. And then we, uh, um, one of the characters, you know, kind of had a rough, uh, kind of a, a kind of rough scarf sort of thing. And it just it felt like the piece needed you to be able to very much identify the individual rather than the rather than treating the good because that that was what is great about the piece it isn't uh, it is as much about the good girls as a group as it is about the good girls as individuals and so that was very much my approach and yeah that was that was probably one of my first real goes of costume design and i learned so much about that process of seeing how we made it happen and uh yeah lots of blood yeah lots of blood um so you know in that instance it's kind of it's, it sounds like it was a really encouraging time for you to be working with a director that kind of inspired you to want yeah. to to um you know play around with ideas and things in the kind of industry that you're in do you find that there's ever moments where you're putting ideas out there and and having those negatively received and does that impact you personally or are you kind of yeah. quite solid in that thinking you know what it's just ideas coming out and one of them will fit a little bit of both a little bit of both i think um yeah it's very important to maybe approach the job with uh, occasionally uh, a pinch of salt you know that there isn't always going to be one diary you know your first idea even if you think it's it's brilliant it, you know it'd be wrong to not have a few more up your sleeve and kind of a few different options and i think what i what i certainly learned along the way and good girls was maybe one of the first times that i kind of did it and it's a process that i've really enhanced and developed as i've as i've gone along is how important that that first conversation is and also how you should approach it as a designer in order to give a director a sense of freedom to not feel like you're turning up to the first meeting having made a lot of design decisions yourself and if the director doesn't agree with them or, or doesn't follow them you know then you suddenly find yourself at an impasse and there's only the first meeting so um yeah i very much developed a way and i do maybe more mood boarding than other people do but i i kind of always approach those first meetings with 
as much visual reference, I, I bring as much visual reference to the first meeting as absolutely possible because directors aren't always the most visual people. Um, whereas I very much am a visual person. It's kind of, kind of part of the job. And so for me, the key is trying to get that response from them as soon as possible. And whilst, yes, you can have a conversation, but a conversation can be very vague. Uh, you know, if a person says, oh, I think it should, should look like this. Whereas if you put an image in front of them, and go, how, how do you feel about this? You'll get a very a much more visceral instant reaction from a director who will either say yes or no. It's extremely collaborative, isn't it? Yes, more, than, so, more than I can you know, think of many other jobs being so you have to communicate with so many different, yeah. pretty much everyone involved I in think the production. as well, more than I realised, which is terrible yeah. from an actor's perspective. You just yeah. kind of, there was there was the box and the set and look great. And we were like, okay, we can play now. It's we kind didn't... of making me feel a bit stupid. Yeah. Like all the stuff that <laughs> you don't even yeah. think about. That so you... interesting. They yeah. have to do. I want to touch a little bit on props as well, because you yeah. were talking to us about, you know, sometimes it's more you get hired to do a very specific job. For instance, what you mentioned to us bef before we recorded uh, working on Phantom of the Opera. Yes, uh, which is, it's old. It's, it's weird to say because it was the 25th anniversary. We've yes. since had the 30th anniversary, exactly. so I can only feel old now. <laughs> Time flies. But yeah, so for the 25th anniversary, they yeah. were filming the whole show and uh, they realised that some of the props kind of needed a bit of updating. So I'm, I'm curious to hear about that because, you know, you, you say that you kind of lean a bit away from the naturalistic and you're really interested mm. in how you can express. But in, in that job, you had to just kind of make stuff look yeah, good and on camera. I guess it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, kind of doing those jobs to survive, to pay the bills in order to, to kind of do the stuff that I wanted. And one of those, the probably the, the job that has financed me the most kind of over the years is, is prop work, um, which came about, I'd sort of done some design assistant work um, in which I met some prop masters who are kind of very well connected kind of in the London theatre scene, do a lot of shows. And that's where the graphics finally came into play. I mean, it, it also came into play one of my big things as a designer was actually starting to incorporate the, the graphics that I'd spent 16 years or whatever developing as just a, um, an art student, kind of finally bringing that into my design work. But where it really helped me along the way was that I had this background in graphic design, which still kind of, you know, isn't it isn't always the thing... There aren't a lot of graphic designers working in theatre, kind of put it that way. And if they are, sometimes it's that they're creating the posters rather than like actually within the, within the show. So I met this prop master, um, did a bit of graphic design for him and, and for his company um, on that show. And then they were like, oh, you, you, do, you do the Photoshop. We don't do the Photoshop. <laughs> we need a person to do the Photoshop. Please let us get in touch if we ever kind of have kind of more jobs to do. And one of them, uh, is, yeah, was Phantom of the Opera because whilst there isn't a lot of graphic design necessarily going on or as predominantly in theatre, there, there is a handful. It is becoming more and more of a requirement because of the way theatre is now being presented, you know, in different art forms. And Phantom's a great example because you had a show that ran in the West End, continues to run in the West End, largely unchanged for a very long time. And it obviously it opened in the 80s. And then for the anniversary, they were going to do this big HD camera filmed production of it. And they realized that a lot of the methods that they might have used on the old like photocopier and scanning devices of the 80s weren't necessarily going to stagger and would still be absolutely fine in a theater where most of the audience is separate from the action by a good 
kind of 10 meters is maybe how far away you are from the stage. Um, but when you're shoving a HD camera right next to the actor and they're holding just a bit of white copy paper with, you know, program or something kind of written on, you need something to be a bit more detailed. And it's, it is just an absolute coincidence that I kind of fell into that job, had the experience as a graphic designer, which became a useful tool for the industry who was kind of needing more and more of that stuff to be done. I, I occasionally I do still get asked to kind of do stuff in that world. And if I, I'm fortunate enough now to be in a position where my most of my time is taken up with the actual set design because that's that's what I want to do but it is it's something that I'll still kind of lay a hand in I mean um for the same company uh, they're called Marcus Hall props they've worked on pretty much every show you you might want to work on uh, most recently I think the last thing I did for them was obviously they did kinky boots when it started in the West End but that has been touring and it's just one of those interesting things as a you know and what Photoshop can be used for because in kinky boots there is a very specific prop which is a it's an engagement photo of the lead character and and his fiance and that's you know is referenced on stage now obviously the engagement photo has to be of the characters who are on stage because everyone in the audience is going to kind of look at that photo look at the people on stage and what that means is is that as a prop you have to make one of those engagement photos for every different combination of performers you might have in that show so you have you know you have your leads but then you have your understudies you have swing covers and all of those things that I don't really know too much about other than that I get sent a folder of photographs that the stage management have taken of all these different combinations of performers that are not on any given night might be filling those roles. And I have to make that engagement photo um, sort of Photoshop it because the, the designer for the show had a very specific background he wanted for the photo and how it was framed and, and all that kind of thing. So I have to do, you know, it's you think of it as one job, but it actually very quickly becomes eight jobs because you have to kind of do it eight times. It's really interesting as well, knowing, you know, what we spoke about, about the... Um the fact that things are now being televised yep. theatre productions because, you know, really they are quite two separate mediums. You know, the, the the size and scale that you might do something on stage could be much bigger or, or much smaller when you transfer it to, to camera, especially yeah. as an actor. You kind of want to tone it down when you're on camera. Does that affect the way things are kind of going for you in the way that you look at? Are you kind of forced to push things in a different way or look at things not, in different ways? Not I'd say not necessarily as a designer yet, because I'm I'm probably quite a way off from having anything that I've designed necessarily um, be filmed or kind of transmitted in that medium. It's certainly something to think about, about the fact that by filming a piece of theatre, you are shrinking that viewfinder of, of what the audience kind of are experiencing. There was the play that was broadcast on Instagram. Did you, I don't know if you watched that. I haven't had Maisie Williams. Oh, right. I think it's called You and I or okay. I and You. It was really good because uh, I watched it and, but it was, what was really interesting was it was broadcast on Instagram or IGTV, I think is the official kind of term, which is so the screen was phone shaped rather than your traditional, like even on YouTube or a computer or a TV, you tend to operate in 16 by 9. I don't know what the ratio is for a phone screen, but that was how that play was transmitted. So if you were watching it on your phone, it was filling the phone rather than you having to turn the phone on its side. And again, that that's really interesting in terms of 
you're getting a phone's width of information given to you, which more often than not is focused on a performer. But how are you kind of then filling in the kind of background? Yeah, and a lot of art and, and creative work we try and be creative, but it's within a frame of how it's been for decades, yep. you know, and then suddenly it keeps changing really quickly and you have to, to move with those times and you can't sort of rely on old tricks and what you used yeah. to do because it's going to become dated. I think if any, if anything, to sort of answer the question about am I thinking about it and not necessarily in that way, but certainly having, I don't know if grown up or um, grown up career wise coming through that, you know, because I was getting all this um, kind of prop work because in the wider theatre community, those little things that, as you say, you know, previously weren't really kind of thought about are now being thought about way more detailed with way, with way more detail than they previously were. One of the other jobs um, that I did was the chocolate bars and the golden ticket for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And you would not believe how many meetings and opinions, well, I mean, maybe you would, that people had about what the look of those props that previously you know if you think of the size of a chocolate bar and that's that's as big as it was on stage it was just the size of a i believe sainsbury's uh, 20 piece you know chocolate wrapped in the in the wonka wrapper but what the wonka wrapper looked like had there were a lot of kind of back and forth there was a lot of design evolution and having so having come up through that system uh, in the props work that i do it is absolutely something i think i've then transferred over to my design work in terms of the level of detail is there ever a, a moment for you of kind of fear of, oh, my creativity is going to run out at some point or only because, you know, as as an actor, we are fortunate, I guess, to, to get the script and then to look at it and then dive into it, which I guess is similar because now having spoken to you, I realize yeah. how how much you relate to the, the reading of a, of a play and getting into it that way. Yeah, is is there any kind of fear based? I'm, I'm almost first. Creativity. I'm going to flip it around because I'm equally as fascinated as performers. Do you ever find that that you feel like the the tap of creativity has kind of run dry, or does that? Or because I I don't know. You know, not knowing enough about your craft. Um, certainly from the outside, it is that, you know, you are, you spend your lives kind of building this technique and skill that you kind of have that I don't know, but is it as simple as you just switch that on and kind of let it happen? Or, you know, I know there will be those roles that you maybe think about a little bit more, but is it a bit like muscle memory for you that you can just kind of dive into a role? I don't know what you think, Liv. For, for me, I think it's, I don't think, I, I'm always confident in in my sort of level ability of I, I will do it, I'll do it. Yeah. What I love is finding a director to work with or a team to work with and other actors to bounce off of to, to raise my game each time, right. which which tends to happen more organically when you're with the right people and you're, you've got the time. I why I prefer theatre really is because you've got the time to have those rehearsals and and be able to develop what's going on. What what do you what do you? Find yeah, I it? think so too. I think that um, actually when you when you flip that question around to us, I th I think that I see that there are similarities and that we do get some information, yeah. which is the play, for instance. We do get that information and then then we work from there. And then we have our ideas. We have our ideas about the character, for instance. Then you come in to rehearsal and it might not have been exactly what the director was thinking, yeah. you know, and then you meet somewhere in the middle or you, you talk about it. So in a way, it's, it's, it's got similarities to it that you come in with your thoughts on it. Yeah. But, and you try maybe and sneak some of them that you think are really good in there, yeah, but yeah. you also have to be prepared to change some of it. Yeah, but in, in the, exactly. In the case of Gut Girls, I actually felt like the 
box, the model box that we saw, and then the drawing of the character, I feel like that then influenced oh, me in a really positive way yeah. because I was able to take the text and everything I knew about the character, plus this visual idea I had of how she might walk wearing something like that. You know, that yeah. actually kind of, without it being me who has to decide how I'm walking and then go up with the, a costume designer who then gives me something completely unlike what I had in my head. So mm. that was really helpful, I think. So, so bouncing the question back yeah, to you, well, what do you think? What's really interesting about what you've just said, the first part of what you've just said, is that you were referring to the time, the time of rehearsals. And whilst um, I'm not foolish enough to think that rehearsal time is endless and you get you know as much time as you need to um to develop the character you are on a deadline i think without wanting to pit our worlds against each other what's interesting is as performers you are afforded a very focused amount of time in which to, to develop that role whereas right now well in different areas of design depending on what you're working on that time is not necessarily always afforded to you and so to finally answer the question that is is absolutely the scariest thing it's not so much can i come up with an idea it's can i come up with an idea yesterday is the scariest part of it because again what and the fellow designers that i've spoke to it's something that we're kind of all going through and it just is unfortunately the nature of the beast right now is that more often than not we are working on two three maybe four productions at the same time so again it's not it uh, i personally don't think it's never can i have an idea it's do i have enough time to come up with the right idea mm. or enough of an idea that i can then actually you know stick with uh support and and kind of put put my effort into that's always the scary kind of part is oh i've only now left myself with three days to turn this new design around because I've been working on the other one or the other two and I've just come out of a tech week and your head can get a little bit kind of all over the place. The only way I've managed to kind of deal with it so far is, and I think that is something that will then translate to you guys, is you ultimately uh, rely on instincts and kind of have to trust yourself in, in whatever capacity as an artist that you are doing what you're doing for the right reasons and that you have enough kind of inbuilt both skill and experience that when you kind of just need to go with your gut feeling about, in my case, you know, what a design's going to look like, that you kind of follow that because you've only got a couple of days to make up your mind kind of thing. So when you've then, you've you've come up with this idea, it's mm -hmm. great, the director's gone, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, you then make this mini set in we like do. in a, I yeah. can't, I can't, you, you'll be better to explain it so we make what's called a model box which it can depend it can depend on uh, what country you're in or what size of theater you're working in i'd say the standard for the size of theater i'm currently working in is to make a model that is 25 exactly 25 times smaller than what the final um kind of set will be other scales do apply i, I think it, the bigger it gets you maybe move into 1 to 50 scale or if it's a massive touring stadium show that maybe you're in one to a hundred. And I think um, America and other countries use, use different scales, which can sometimes confuse people a little bit. I have a really weird relationship with model boxes because it is the part of my job that I absolutely hate. Really? Um, yeah, which oh, is... Because I was going to ask you, do you get a kind of little buzz from when a car... Because I, rem I remember our reaction when we saw your model oh, box. Oh, well, that's, that's different. I absolutely get a buzz from that reaction. But 
in terms of the two weeks I spent making the thing before <laughs> before the presentation, that is certainly something I could do without. It was, it's uh, it's very much a part of the job that when I made that crazy decision with no qualifications whatsoever, oh, I'll be a set designer, that I then was like, oh, but that means I have to make those models. <laughs> um, and ultimately, the thing about the models is, is kind of in, in what I've touched on is that, you know, a big part of the job is communication and the models serve a very good purpose in terms of that communication, both as a three-dimensional representation of what the set's going to look like. So it allows maybe a different view of, of kind of, so the director can see what elements are downstage, upstage, you know, kind of get that in their head. It also, depending on, on kind of, it can inform the carpenters as to how big things are going to be. And this is the thing, at the same time it can, it doesn't have to. And very early on realizing that my model making skills are certainly not up there with the best of them. Um, but realizing that the model is a tool of communication. I've spent a good portion of my career working out how I can communicate the same thing that a model does uh, differently. So I am very Photoshop proficient. One of the biggest steps forward I took in my own practice was realizing that I had this skill and why wasn't I using this skill? And I wasn't using it because when I was taught about model making, you know, we touched on it for like maybe a week at GSA, just as a, this is, this is what the models are. We were being taught by a man who's an absolutely phenomenal model maker and he, you know, makes everything by hand and he paints them because he's a fantastic painter. And it was very easy to sit there and think, oh, that's the way models need to be made and then feel really sad about the fact that I wasn't very good at that and then get really confused because why to be a set designer where you know the the crux of the of the job is deciding what you think the set should look like but if you can't make it in cardboard does that make you a bad set designer you know it was really kind of confusing period and eventually my kind of light bulb breakthrough moment was going oh i have this skill in photoshop and that can be really useful and it's it's probably happened just after the show I did with you, Laura, where I really started, in terms of the models, making them as a net on the computer. Because I like I can do that in Photoshop in the blink of an eye. I just know how to do that because of how long I've been using Photoshop. So now I make all the stuff in the computer. And I'm also, I'm better at painting in the computer than I am with, with a paintbrush. So if I want a bloody texture like our set had, I can just, you know, add that bloody texture in Photoshop, print it off on my printer at home and then cut it out as a little flat pack net and stick it together. And as soon as I worked that out, I'm still not saying I'm I'm still not as, as good a model maker as, as some, but my models became a lot better. And then after that were, because it takes me a while, you know, it takes a very long time to make those models anyway. And it takes me even longer because I'm not that good at kind of sticking them together. So there have been a few occasions where, again, I can make a very good concept painting of what I think the set is going to look like in Photoshop, which gives a lot of the same information that that model will then do. And I can then make the technical drawings, the kind of blueprints, if you will, we don't print them on blue paper anymore, but the, you know, the, the schematics for all the set pieces, I can make those on Photoshop as well. And the combination of those two things does communicate 
the same thing that a, a model box does. I think there's an important lesson in here to kind of remind people that in whatever we do, we've been taught a way to do it and it's meant really well because it's meant to be Absolutely. a tool to help us and it's taught us by the people who have done this and that's been the way that worked for them but to also kind of keep an open mind to the skills that you do have yep. that you can actually because the second you start talking about working in your own way you get really excited about it because that's that's where your interests lie and that's yep. where your skills are and it's serving the same purpose and that's the whole point it's like you want to do the job but there are elements of it that don't excite you as much and then you kind of go well how can i do this in a way that is easier and more fun for me and even even just from a method approach that there Mm. are there are often so many ways to do a thing um and actually because i'm kind of fortunate enough now um i go back and i teach photoshop at guildford I, i teach the production students there photoshop now and even in those lessons, one of the first things I say to them is, look, listen, I've been using Photoshop for as long as I have, but this is only the way I learn, you know, and this is the only way I use it. If you have already have some experience with Photoshop or in a couple of weeks time, you discover something that I've never, like Photoshop is such a massive program. I feel like I'm advertising, like oh, it should be paid by them. Um, but it's such a, you know, uh, and any, any, I think, form of technology, you know, there are so many unlimited options that one of the first things I say to the students is, listen, if you find a way that works for you to make this software work, then don't not do that because in the lesson that PJ taught, he said, you know, kind of do it this way. If it, if it works, it works. Has there ever been a, a time that you've just hit a wall with it and thought, okay, enough is enough. I can't find the next gig or, I, you know, it's not paying enough and um, I'm doing something else. Well, they're not paying enough is a really interesting <laughs> question. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate to stay and work. Which is a really is a really interesting sentence to hear out loud because I'm saying I'm really unfortunate uh, I'm really fortunate to stay in work, but what comes with that one based on what I was saying before is you actually it's it's not easy to do four jobs at once um, of the same thing and to juggle those things. It really takes it takes a massive impact on both your social life and then the time you're kind of able to give to things because you know design is so so art based um and, and even kind of what i was saying before i'm sure you as performers um as much rehearsal time as you get you'd always like that little bit extra extra time to prepare for a role and it's the same it's the same with design but and again, when you're t- thinking about a detail-orientated design, you really could, you can fill the hours that you have available to you so easily that the tricky, the, the balance is the trickiest part about it. I because, And I'm saying that as someone who's been fortunate enough to keep getting these gigs, and it is that thing of obviously the dream. The dream is that you start getting gigs that pay you an amount of money to only take on certain gigs and still have a a kind of comfortable life whereas you know theater is not it's not the highest paid industry at a certain level there is i think a bigger conversation to be had about how that money is being spread out amongst not just amongst shows but amongst the different departments within the shows and where that money goes and right now i there are many reasons for why it's spread out but i don't necessarily think the balance is quite there and what that leaves you with is you know you have to you have the choice of do i take on 
one gig and then go and work in doing whatever as a part-time gig um, alongside in order to be able to afford to live. But is that going to directly clash with the, the amount of time that I need to give to my art form, which going back, you know, we'd all like to like to give as much time as possible. Or do I, you know, balance a lot of these different gigs so I get to completely immerse myself in creativity? How great's that? Isn't that the dream? Um, it very quickly becomes not the dream when, you know, you are spending all hours of every day a week working across different shows and kind of trying to put yourself in those different mindsets. That's That's been so far the hardest part. And last year, last year was a very... It, it was a difficult year just in terms of the amount of work that I took on because it can be very difficult to say no because we all have that fear that if you turn, uh, in, in two ways, if you turn a job down, is another job going to come along? Or if you turn a job down, is that going to be the sleeper hit that would have catapulted <laughs> you to the next phase of your career because it's the show that everyone everyone saw and so for for a long time certainly last year i was quite bad at, at being able to say no and so took on more and more stuff and it really it did have an impact kind of on me so towards the end of last year you i kind of you know i i am now becoming more cautious about what jobs I take on and how they are going to to balance uh, just in terms of my personal life and and from a creative point of view as well and to be honest from a financial point of view it has to be it has to be a discussion that we kind of start to have and especially as designers where you aren't paid by the hour you're you're bought out you know you get a design fee and that is on one hand slightly understandable because how could you you know ever put a finite amount of hours on the time you're going to spend developing a design for a show but at the same time it leaves that really murky territory of well how long am i meant to spend on this show for the money that i'm getting because at the end of the day the your producers and, and the people behind the shows they will always want the kind of the most for their money well you have to consider the financial you know you have to you have to take care of yourself and your own life as well what has been the most career defining moment for you oh when you felt like oh yeah i am doing <laughs> this you know i'm not splitting my focus four different ways i am doing this properly and that's that's a hard one that's kind of a hard one to answer because i'd almost i don't know if i'm quite there yet it, it's really interesting and it's been interesting to kind of go through this and go back over everything and go oh i'm doing this for quite a while now i've got a bit of experience but if i'm honest you know it it's interesting how much experience it's taken to get to a point where I still feel like the the best is yet to come, I guess you could say. You know, I've got career ambitions and those sorts of things, and right now I'm at a certain level, and that's and that's fine. And it's interesting to now think, oh, it's taken seven years for me to get here, and that is that's a quite a chunk of of life kind of put into that, but. It has, but I wouldn't say, oh, it's taken me seven years and now I'm really happy with the place that I'm in. I definitely kind of want to continue to do more interesting projects, do bigger projects, do. It's that really tricky part of the ego that I think we all have as artists of are you doing the work for yourself? Are you doing the work so that other people see it? If other people don't see your work, did it really happen? <laughs> you know, and those sorts of things. And I have all of that kind of going on and very much, you know, feel like I've only maybe got a couple of my toes in the door of what 
in my head is, uh, you know, a design career, which isn't to say that along the way, you know, some of the design, I, I, I'm going to sound like a proud mother, but I, uh, you know, I genuinely have affection for most of the designs that I've done, I think. Some are like, certainly alongside those designs, some of the experiences have been better than others. Some have been a right old slog <laughs> and you kind of come out the other side, never again, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I think ultimately, as just a personal pride in your work kind of thing, most of the time, it's, it's kind of good. It's good thinking about it, that there isn't anything jumping out of my head and going, oh, I, I'd, I'd say maybe some of my really early stuff, <laughs> some of the really early designs, I, I'm not quick to, you know, bring them out in a design meeting or a portfolio review. But, you know, they have a kind of special place in kind of just in looking back on them. I don't know about you. This has been so interesting mm. for me. Just, I think it has really highlighted sort of people, especially in creative industries, the real flip side of it being quite insular and quite, you know, you're on your own and you're trying yeah. to make it. And also the fact that we're kind of lucky, I guess, in, in a sense that you have to be collaborative. You have to work with other people and be able to communicate with other people to, to bounce off of them and also, you know, to, to do the job effectively. So it's been so interesting to hear about um, what I should have already known about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we should have known about yeah. secret, yeah, secret yeah. lives. Yeah. Of, if, um, if people want to find you on hmm. social media, how can they? Yes, um, across most social media. I'm not on Facebook, sorry. I'm, I'm that guy. Um, but Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at PJ by Design. And I also have a website, which is sort of the same address. It's pjbydesign.com. And uh, just uh, for me personally, what, what's PJ stand for? It depends who's at who asks if, if sometimes when people ask me what pj stands for it's peace and justice because that's a really Ooh, witty answer very cool <laughs> um i had very hippie parents so yeah <laughs> absolutely but uh you can also know me as peter james ah, yeah. peter james mcavoy yeah, yeah. That's uh, a great name. Which is, that's my mum when I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's, what <laughs> that's, why, that's why you're PJ now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much that's for coming great. to chat to us. Really um, keep an eye out for your work. So I don't know if this is going to come out in time, but you worked on a show week that Liv and I got the opportunity to see yes. uh, all in a row at the Southern Playhouse. So uh, keep an eye out for what you're doing next. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. In Monday's episode, Liv and I are talking to Carla Fraser, an actor, filmmaker and conservationist. And it is such an interesting episode about how two seemingly different worlds can work really well together. Remember to subscribe to My Amazing Mess so you always get the latest episode. That's the one I sing into. Ah, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So it's going to make my voice sound amazing exactly. <laughs> and in tune. Hi everyone, it's Laura here. While you're waiting for the next My Amazing Mess episode to come out, why don't you check in with another podcast that we love? Co-hosts Steph and Lisa, who are both performers, give you Happy Heart Podcast. They are passionate about opening up conversations about mental health, self-talk and mindset. If you're interested in gratitude, self-love and just loving life in general, you'll really enjoy this one. Mm -hmm.